0: The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Uh, Welcome to the show. It's Beyond Reality, and I am your host, J.V. Johnson. It's going to be uh, an interesting night. We're going to take a bit of a departure from um, our normal course of conversation, if you will. Uh, You know, we talk a lot about a lot of paranormal things here. We talk about conspiracy things here. We talk about a lot of the strange, the unusual. And sometimes, sometimes, like when we talk to Mr. Lobo about horror movies, or sometimes when we talk to, we had Dee Snyder on about his music um, and his work in film. I'm trying to think of some other examples, but sometimes we delve into a bit of a pop culture discussion, and that's what we're going to do tonight. I'm really excited about this, because in addition to being just an interesting topic, as you probably know by now, if you've been a uh, viewer or listener to this program for some time, I am a huge Beatles fan. I am um, not only do I love their music, I love their story. I find everything about them fascinating. And tonight we're going to be talking with Ivor Davis. He is a journalist and an author who was given the privilege, in retrospect, at the time it was just a job. But in retrospect, it was quite a privilege to actually be paired up with the Beatles and travel with them throughout the United States when they were on tour. He was covering their exploits for a British um, media outlet. And he's ended up writing a book about it. And why not? Why wouldn't you? And we're going to talk to him about what he experienced, who the Beatles were behind the scenes, all that kind of stuff tonight. And we're going to do it um, with Ivor. Um, In addition to, if we have time, and I'm, I'm a little concerned that I won't get all my Beatles questions out in the amount of time we have. But if, if I do and we've got enough time, he's also written about the Manson murders and we're going to talk about that as well, uh, assuming we have time to do it all. But either way, it's going to be a fantastic discussion talking with somebody who actually had the unbelievable experience of traveling with the Beatles when they were on tour in America. We do have a Patreon support page because of the way we've changed the formats of the program. We are no longer an advertising driven show, although we do have some advertising, but it's not the bulk of it. I mean, before... The program switched formats. And one of the reasons we did switch formats is we were running 21 minutes an hour of breaks. That only leaves 39 minutes to talk. And when you're going in and out, you got to take a couple minutes away, um, you know, at least a minute with each break, four breaks. That's another four minutes. So 25 minutes because you're using bumper music too. So we've reduced that drastically. Uh, so now we uh, have an opportunity for people to support us directly. And the way to do that, if you're listening as a podcast, you'll see a little. Uh, link in the description. Say support this podcast. But if you're watching on YouTube or listening on YouTube, all you have to do is go to Patreon and find Joha J O H A W. And when you find that, uh, there are a couple different options for you to support. The program and many people have already done that and we thank every one of you. And and as we uh, progress here, we're gonna do some special things and special broadcasts just for our Patreon supporters. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. It's very uh, difficult to debate the fact that four lads from Liverpool changed the world in a way that no musicians, no celebrities, no people, no politicians ever have. And of course, I'm talking about the Beatles. Tonight, we're honored to have as a guest Ivor Davis. Ivor is a journalist and an author. He first came to America in the early 60s. He was appointed the West Coast correspondent for the London Daily Express in 1963. And his first big assignment came in 1964. And that assignment? To hang out, travel with, and get to know John, Paul, George, and Ringo, members of what was at the time a new pop group from Liverpool that some people had heard of called the Beatles. Ivor, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's a real honor to have you here tonight.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's great to be on, and I hope we're going to have a great chat about everything from the Beatles to maybe Charles Manson.
0: I'm hoping we get to everything, but I'm going to warn you in advance. I am a super fan when it comes to the Beatles, so I have a lot of questions, and I know you've got the answers. You're one of the few people in the world that actually has these answers, so this is really exciting, but before we get too deep, tell us how a a reporter, a journalist, a West Coast correspondent for the London Daily Express finds himself traveling with the Fab Four. Well, a lot of it is
1: pure, unadulterated luck. Because I was the West Coast correspondent for one of the biggest newspapers in England. And the Beatles were invading America for the very first time. And my newspaper also had made a deal with George Harrison, that George Harrison was going to write a column for them. However, George was so busy singing and doing all the things that George does, that Muggins, me, happily, was assigned to travel with them, get to know them, write George's column, be his ghostwriter. And that was the beginning of what I say was an incredible ticket to ride. Because don't forget this, JB, that in America, communications back then were not as good as they are today. And the only thing most of us knew about the Beatles was in February 1964, these four lads showed up on the Ed Sullivan Variety Show. That was when TV had variety shows. And believe it or not, they had 74 million people tuned into the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and Brian Epstein, their manager, said, Hey, there's a lot of people out there that want to see these, my Beatles. And off we go in the summer of 64 for a almost six-week tour of America and Canada, and I was lucky enough to be on board their private jet.
0: And to put things in perspective, the Beatles at that point, uh, prior to that Ed Sullivan performance had been had become a rather, I guess, big, we'll use the word, hit in, uh, in England. They were known, they were popular. But really, it, making it in the United States was something that every music act, every group uh, saw as the real opportunity or the real goal, and very few did it. Very few were able to cross the pond or uh, come from outside of the United States and be successful in America. Um, so the Beatles yeah. really didn't know what was going to happen, did they?
1: Well, you're absolutely right, because Brian Epstein, their manager, the guy that took them from scruffy, swearing, um, smoking uh, guys to these these likable lads, Brian Epstein, he knew that most of the rock stars that came over from England to America, Tommy Steele, you probably, I mean, I don't think too many of your listeners have heard of him, but many of the rock stars of England came to America, and they absolutely nosedived. So Brian was terrified and excited, and and guess what? The Beatles did rather well.
0: There is, um, I, I, if I understand uh, the history of it, uh, well enough, there were some what would be considered, um, I, I guess not bootleg, but I guess independent uh, record companies that may have been distributing a few of the Beatles songs. There were some imports, I guess, that were hard to get a hold of, but you might be able to, to find one or two. So, there was a bit of a subculture that started to become familiar with the Beatles uh, prior to that Ed Sullivan performance, but it was Ed Sullivan that brought them mainstream. Yeah, Ed
1: Sullivan was the, the, the make a, a break program because as you pointed out a moment ago, KB, um, the Beatles had a hard time getting a, a recording company to pick them up, and they started off with a Chicago company that nobody had ever heard of that basically handled uh, black entertainers. So that wasn't quite the way that the, the, lo- the likable lads thought they would make it. And in fact, there's a story that uh, not too many people know that Louise Harrison who was the sister of George Harrison, tried desperately taking records around a few Midwest recording stations, the radio stations, rock and roll stations, to try and get them desperately to play the Beatles music. Well, as soon as they did Ed Sullivan, as soon as they hit America in August 1964, all hell broke loose, and boy, did the Beatles take off.
0: So you got the assignment. The Beatles were coming to tour. You were assigned to travel with them, get to know them, kind of uh, look under the hood a little bit to see what made them tick. Uh, Did you meet them at the airport when they arrived, or when did you hook up with them?
1: Well, I was in Los Angeles, and they arrived very, very jet-lagged to San Francisco a few hours uh, before I flew into San Francisco. But I knew something was afoot because I showed up at the Hilton Hotel in San Francisco. There were about, it was a late afternoon, there were about 3,000 girls outside the hotel. <laughs> and I had to fight my way through there. Wow. I managed to, managed to get up to their floor, because I was booked into the hotel by the Beatles, by Derek Taylor, their press guy. And I met the Beatles, and I must tell you, uh, the welcome that they gave me was uh, not very overwhelming. It, it, because they were jet-lagged. And they were watching television. They were watching themselves arrive on, uh, on television. So they kind of sloughed me off. But then when they realized that I was there for the duration of their tour, uh, we became very good friends. And, they, and you know, we hang out with them and all these wonderful things that, that happened because the Beatles could not leave their hotel. And they were stuck with guys like me, Arthur Schreiber from Westinghouse. We were their family on the road. So we got to know them pretty well as time continued on the tour.
0: Prior to you being assigned to them, um, and prior to them coming to America, you obviously um, the UK was your home base, but you were you were in the United States. Did you have? Did you have an awareness of who these guys were?
1: Well, to be honest with you, vaguely, because don't forget, we didn't have the internet. We couldn't punch in Google and Google Beatles. We couldn't learn about them. I mean, I'd heard these young guys were doing well in Europe. They were doing well in England. They were selling out in England. They were getting crazy crowds at their concerts. But but the communication, as I say, was so... Uh, I mean, it, it, it's like about 3% of what it is today. And I knew a bit about them, but I quickly did a bit of research... I made sure to watch them on Ed Sullivan. I saw the screaming and the, and the frenzy uh, of, of, of the Beatles, and I thought, well, you know, they could do well. And I think they did well.
0: So you're, you, you, you get introduced to the Beatles. You say they were kind of a jet lag. They were watching television. They weren't giving you a real warm reception. What was your first impression of these four guys?
1: Well, I, I kind of like them because they, because don't forget, they were sort of rock stars in England, in Europe, and they were pretty kind of l- low key. No BS, no, no big movie star, rock star persona. They were like four, four likely lads who you might run into in the pub in Liverpool. They were not, and, and even throughout the tour, they never became big headed. They were never inaccessible. They were always ready to talk. I mean, we used to hang out and I used to play Monopoly with John at two in the morning. I used to wander into their suite and help myself to their free drinks from their from their mini bar, much to the chagrin of their their manager Brian Epstone, who kept saying, This this bar bill, you guys, are is too much. Cut back on the drinking. Anyway, but that is, so so it was like buddies instantly, but don't forget, we were probably around the same age. I mean, I think I was an age two years or three years older than that.
0: I mean, it's also important to remember that the Beatles at that time were basically kids. I mean, they were very young men, 23, 24, 25, somewhere right in there.
1: Exactly, I'm even younger than that. I mean, they were in their early 20s. They were in America. They were seeing that America was falling down in front of them. Uh, and, and treating them like uh, that, they were, they were rock stars, uh, treating them like they were superstars, and, and, and they liked it. But at the same time, they were contained to their hotels, and, and they couldn't go out. That was the only negative that they told me. They would love to have seen more of America. But every, everywhere we went, whether it was Vegas or New York, uh, whether it was New Orleans, they were trapped in their hotel every hour of the day because it was too risky to step outside.
0: Were you quickly accepted into their, what we'll call their inner circle?
1: I think I was, mainly because I was round about their age, mainly because we all have a dark, twisted sense of humor, and the Beatles had a twisted sense of humor, particularly John, who was a real, uh, you know, the real character. But don't forget that John... And the Paul and the Ringo and the George you learnt about, and we all learned about much later, evolved. They they were callow fellows, and they became, um, well, they become became much more mature as they went on. But in those days, they were pretty down to earth. There was no BS about them, and they uh, they were in, uh, fun to be with.
0: In retrospect, it's easy to look back and say, wow, what a magical time, what a magical moment. And, of course, they're the Beatles. But they weren't really the Beatles at that time. They were still being discovered, especially in America. Did you have an understanding at the time of how historical those weeks with those those four guys was going to be?
1: I've got to confess, JB, that I did not. And you know what? neither did the Beatles. Right. Because when I asked them at the end of the tour what they were going to do with themselves, and, and so, so so Ringo said he was going to open a hairdressing salon for his girlfriend who became his wife. John said he might write music for other people. So did, so did Paul. And they had no idea that 55 years later or thereabouts that we would be talking about them. Um, they didn't have a clue because they didn't realize the longevity would go on, and they didn't realize that their reservoir of music that that my kids and my grandkids enjoy, and probably many young people that you know enjoy, is still around, is still sung, is is, is being performed by every single recording star, is being played by symphony orchestras. I mean, they didn't realize that. They thought they would last maybe five years.
0: I remember seeing in one of the documentaries about the Beatles, I remember seeing a clip and I think it was George Harrison that said something to the effect of, you know, we could be big headed and think that we're going to last seven years, but that's probably not going to happen. And then he went on to, you know, talk about other things. Um, there's a couple things about that statement that I find unique. One is that they did last about seven years as a group. Um, because they ended up breaking up around 1970 uh, so it is about seven eight years whatever whatever that is but their music is absolutely timeless and i don't think anybody was prepared for that
1: no nobody was prepared for that nobody was prepared for the longevity of their music but you're right maybe because it was fifty years ago this year that they officially broke up i mean it wasn't a it was a terrible divorce i mean John was going against paul and and the other two didn't know where they were. Brian Epstein, who was their leader, the guy that sort of manu- manipulated them into the image that we all know of the old days, had, had, was dead. And they got into a terrible, ferocious fight. Uh, John's team and Paul, Ringo, and George's team. So, so it was a it was a terrible fight to the finish. And and yet uh, they were so talented that they've all gone on to. Perform as individuals. I mean, Ringo is still performing, as I'm sure you know. Yeah. Uh, Paul, of course, I saw several months ago, and he's he. I mean, he packs in fifty five thousand regularly. He performs for three hours and twenty minutes. When when I travelled with the Beatles, let me ask you this, uh, uh, Jv: How long do you think they sang for when they did the concerts at? Uh, uh, in San Francisco, in LA, in New York, what do you think they sang
0: for? I know it wasn't long by today's standards, but how long did they sing for?
1: For about twenty-seven minutes. Wow! <laughs> and they and they, it was a running joke because they said they tried to break their record each time, and there was not much chit chat between the shows. They did ten songs, and they lasted. Uh, and they and they went if they if they, if, if they actually over overdid it, they went for thirty minutes. I mean. You you couldn't you would not pay today a big ticket money uh, to see a group perform for thirty minutes would you?
0: Probably not. But I also know that uh, the ticket prices back then were significantly yep. less, even if you adjusted from inflation. I've seen I've seen uh, current ticket prices going for thousands of dollars. What what did they charge for those concerts when you were with them?
1: Well. Well, I'm going to tell you. Um, I'm going to turn the question around, if I may, uh, for a moment, J.V. Because when we went to see Paul McCartney, I met a young lady who said she goes to every show and sits in the second row and pays about eighteen hundred dollars for a ticket. Wow. But then, but then, uh, you could get a ticket for three fifty, and the best tickets. I mean, you really wanted the hotshot tickets up front. You, you could cash out five dollars and fifty cents. Wow. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing, isn't
0: it? It is quite amazing. And those those concerts, now, you're traveling with them, they're performing, they're performing for 27 minutes. Could you hear anything? I mean, could you even tell there was music playing?
1: Well, the answer to that question is no and no. Because the moment they showed up on stage, the moment they showed up on stage, the girls started screaming, and really, I couldn't hear. I sat in the front row at every concert so I could make a a fast getaway with the Beatles. Um, Because the girls sang and listened, they couldn't hear the song. Now, I must tell you a funny story. Um, I I was talking on one of the Beatles um, clips, uh, speeches that I did, to a man who said that uh, he remembered his, his, now, she's a, a grandmother, but she was a young girl. She went to see the Beatles, I think, in New York. And she said, when he picked her up, he took her home. She, what, what was the concert? Like? Oh, it was fantastic. What was the songs and the music like? She said, I couldn't hear a single a <laughs> single word. And, and, and he said to her, then why was it so great? And she said, because we were breathing the same air. Wow. So, so there you go.
0: Well, wow. you know, when, when you hear stories like that and when you see footage of those concerts and you see the way the teenagers, particularly the girls, were reacting, this was much more than just the music they had written and, and were playing. What what else did you sense from them that well, created this?
1: Sense, here's what I sense, Evie. Um What kept happening was, and, 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 and I saw the girls kind of freaking out, and then much later, when I got round to writing my book and I spoke to many women who had been teenagers at the time and they were, they were executives, they were, they were top flight people in, in responsible jobs and they, and they were Beatle fans. And I would say, well, what was it about it? I mean, you didn't hear a, a single word. What was, what? why? And, and they would say, well, Ringo was in love with me. Paul is passionate about me. I would say, how, how do you know? And they would say, well, when I went to the concert, Paul waved back and George smiled at me. Wow. I mean, there it is. That's your, you know, that was the attraction. But they, they, each of the girls, each of the spectators had a passion for one particular Beatle. And for some reason in their kind of fantasy minds, the Beatles loved them too.
0: We're talking with Ivor Davis. He's written a book called The Beatles and Me on Tour. He's got other books as well. Manson exposed a reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. And hopefully we'll have some time to get to that. But as I said, Ivor, my list of Beatles questions is long. Tell me about each of the Beatles. Take a a second or two or however long it takes and tell me about each of them individually. What were their personalities like when you were one-to-one with these guys?
1: Well, again, I, I preface my answer with the with something I told you a moment ago. These were young men. They were not fully formed individuals. So you've got to take that into account. Now the most provocative, the most fun character was John Lennon. I mean he was he was more fully formed than the rest of them. But John was was great because he would entertain you when we used to have drinks and rum and coke. Stuff late at night when we went to play Monopoly with him at 2 in the morning. I mean, he was an entertainer. I mean, we were in, we were in uh, Key West, Florida, and we were watching uh, because it was a, we missed a hurricane and we stopped in Key West, and John and I and Derek and a bunch of, uh, of other people were sitting around in John's bungalow, and he, and he was watching a guy called Fidel Castro uh, 25 miles away on television doing a speech for an hour, and when it was finished, John stood up and did an absolutely impeccable imitation of Fidel Castro. And John was like that. I mean, he liked to provoke you, he needed you, he got a kick out of needling you. So he was probably the most entertaining individually of the Beatles. Um, Paul was always a, I always use the term schmoozer. I mean, Paul was as he is today, charming. I saw him last year. Um, he is, uh, I mean, he was Mr. Smoothie, uh, and he was actually wonderful to get along with. Now, my only problem was with George Harrison, because I was writing his column, and I said to George, tell me what's in your mind that George slept till 3 in the afternoon, and I had to make up a lot of the stuff, uh, and George got upset that he wasn't. his column under his name was pretty, pretty boring. So we had a little bit of an argument, but then I said, wake up in time, talk to me, George, and improve. it improved. And then Ringo. Ringo was kind of a, a let say, a very callow young man. He played the drums, uh, and I always say, well, you know, he was a very young drummer, and very young drummers are not intellectual. So, so Ringo was probably um, the least um, chatty of the lot. Although, as I said a moment ago, every one of them had a lovely sense of humor. And, and that's what made it work for us and me.
0: Those personalities, would you agree that individually they were, they were amazing personalities, but the whole was greater than the sum of its parts when they were together?
1: Absolutely. You've hit the nail on the head because every time we arrived in a new city, we would, we would leave our private jet, um, and then we jump into limousines. They were in the first limousine. I was in the second limousine. We'd go to a press conference for the local media. And I want to tell you, you can see the press conferences on YouTube. Tune in. Get your, When you have a few moments, tune in to the Beatles meeting the press. I mean, they arrive in Toronto, and, and, and after 10 minutes, they have a press conference, and somebody says, what do you think of the Canadian women, John? You know, I, I mean, come on! I've only been there ten minutes. But they, but but the amazing thing about the Beatles was that they could finish each other's lines. It was like it was like that wonderful group that most people don't remember called the Marx Brothers, a comedy team.
0: I love the Marx uh, they Brothers.
1: Were, they were I, I, yeah. I, I love physical. You
0: know I love the Marx Brothers. I love the Marx Brothers. Ivor, I watch Marx Brothers films all of the time.
1: Terrific. Well, you know what I mean. Um, so they were they were the Marx Brothers with Liverpool accents because because people ask you know what do you how, you know how do you find America you make a left turn to Iceland or something like that you know <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I, I, I can't repeat it but they were very funny and they were original and no press conference was the same although the questions were the same uh, so they were they they were sharp they were witty and, and they had a sense of humour which I think save them from becoming uh, swallowed up by their own egos.
0: We um, can only imagine being young men at that time, basically having the world at your feet, Um, anything you wanted, uh, and, and being celebrated everywhere you went. But in private, Ivor, were the Beatles happy? Were they happy at that point in their lives?
1: I think they were happy. I mean, look, here are these young men with healthy libidos, and they're getting these beautiful young women dying to meet them, Miss uh, Albuquerque or Miss whatever, you know, Miss, Miss Los Angeles or wherever they were. They had a, 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 a whole flotilla of young women coming in and sort of gasping to be in their presence, to breathe their air. air. And so they were having fun, you know. And, and um, uh, I mean, John was married. Uh, the others were not married. And so when the beautiful young ladies came wandering through their suites and wanted to hold their hand or do more, uh, the boys were quite happy to uh, provide them with whatever they needed.
0: Did they... Um, we, 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 we've seen... Uh, footage we've seen um, testimony we've seen interviews of the beatles later on and of course as you mentioned Ivor the breakup was ugly um, but did they get along in, in those early days were they friends
1: well they did i mean they were all in the same boat and i must tell you uh, on that first american tour um, I never saw them arguing i never saw them uh, any spats uh, because they were in the same boat together, and they knew that they had to row it in the same direction. I mean, that's not a great parallel, but you get the feeling, sure. uh, get the impression. So they knew that they were, um, and this was a dream. And they all wanted to come. They all admired America. They all wanted to come to America, and they they just—I mean, it was it was a, a trip for them. And so the only thing, as I said a few minutes ago. Was that John said to me? I wish I'd been able to step outside the hotel in Las Vegas, or I wish, you know, I wanted to go and see where John Kennedy had been assassinated when they were in when they were in Dallas. But Brian Epstein said no; uh, it, it, it's it's the wrong image. We you know we want you to be uh, footloose and fancy free, and 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 not get too serious with anyone. So, so they were they were young men. Who were bowled over by America, but not, but it, but it was a rather uh, a rather restricted view of America. I mean, we went, and I tell you, as I said, Jv, we went from private jet. We landed in private airports, not the main airport. There was always the limousines there. We got a motorcycle escort to the hotel. Uh, the hotel was besieged by young women. The people had to fight their way through there. They went to their rooms. They had guards on the floor because the girls did all sorts of sorts of very uh, clever ways to try and get to meet the Beatles, and, and they were trapped in the hotel. So they, were, they, were, they would love to have gone out, but it didn't quite work that way. So it was, it was America, but it was a, a restricted America, and, um, and since then, of course, uh, as you know and as the world knows, They'd come and gone to America, John lived in New York, which of course, as you know and and they and, 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 and now today, Ringo lives in l a Paul spends a lot of time in l a and has homes in other places so in that period back in in the '60s when they first came, they loved america um, and, and, and America loved them, and the movie stars loved them, and uh, everybody wanted to hold their hand. <laughs>
0: Um, you just, obviously we're going to be talking about John Lennon a lot tonight. And it just occurred to me that John Lennon was 40 years old when he was killed. And that, uh, that we're in the 40th anniversary of, of his death. Um, it's been 40 years since John Lennon was shot. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when
1: he, when I heard of his death, um, of course you, you can't believe it. But then, uh, having lived in America, having been a a journalist who covered the big stories of John Kennedy assassination, I happened to be uh, tragically in the the kitchen when Bobby Kennedy got killed. Um, You know, living in America, as we all know, people do get killed. People who who have no control over what happens to them. And what happened to John, it was like, oh, a horrible, sick feeling of, of déjà vu, because these things happen. They happen everywhere, but they seem to happen a lot in America. And, and as a journalist, I've covered a lot of a lot of ass- some assassinations. So um, the death of Lennon, you wonder uh, if John had been alive today, how how would things be different? Uh, but as you said, he was his life was cut short at such a young age, really, for such a talented songwriter performer as Lennon. It's it. It
0: was and is a tragedy. It it really is, and it's still a day that many people, you know, you always people always say everyone remembers where they were when they heard the news of JFK being shot. I think uh, yeah. there's a lot of people that feel similarly about when John Lennon was shot. Um, did the did the Beatles uh, during those days when you were traveling with them have any um, I guess idols of their own that they were looking to meet while they were in America?
1: Yes, I mean, first of all. I think the main person that they wanted to meet in America was Elvis Presley. And, and I, I was fortunate enough in 1965 to go with the Beatles to meet Elvis Presley. So they finally got to meet him. You know, in 64, Brian Epstein, the manager of the Beatles, and Colonel Tom Parker, the manager of Elvis Presley, were trying to bring the boys together. But it never happened. Elvis was making movies. The Beatles were on tour. And finally, in August of 1965, I got a call to say, we're going to see Elvis, and I knew it was it was being planned. And so we went to see Elvis, and it was really good. Would you like me to tell you a little bit more?
0: Yeah, I'd love to hear it.
1: Well, the funny thing was that when we arrived at Elvis' house, and he, he had a home in Beverly Hills because... He spent a lot of time in Vegas. He spent a lot of time in LA. Of course, he had his—he has Graceland in Memphis. So when we arrived finally to see Elvis, uh, we walked in this large living room, and there was Elvis sitting on a couch, looking like Elvis. And I always imagine—I always see him with his sideburns like shag carpeting. And he was sitting there, and it was Elvis. And the Beatles sat down, and for about five or ten minutes, nobody did the introduction. (laughs) Finally, finally, there was nobody kind of the ambassador. I like you to meet John, John, this is Elvis, Elvis, this is Paul, none of that. Finally, Elvis gets up after 15 minutes and says, hey, you guys, uh, I thought you came here to jam. If you don't want to do that, I'm going to bed. Well, that that broke the ice. And so they started jamming uh, for about 15 to 20 minutes. And then they began a conversation that we could, I could overhear about, about the perils of flying around. Because, I mean, Buddy Holly had just been, uh, died in the plane crash. And they hit it off much, much better. But but there was an underlining um, moment, a time, a period of, of, of what really was the atmosphere. And I'll tell you what the atmosphere was. I think Elvis was jealous. Because Elvis had been knocked off the hit parade by the Beatles, these yeah. interlopers from England. At the same time, Elvis was making three, well, they're crappy movies, but three cookie-cutter movies every year, and he, he hated it. I know that he, he thought he was. They were awful. He wasn't. His heart wasn't in it. And here were these young interlopers from England. They came over. They were a smash hit. They knocked him off the hit parade, and. They made one movie, A Hard Day's Night, and it was a smash hit. So Elvis was a bit jealous. And I, I realized a few years later that he really was jealous because he went to see Richard Nixon a few years later. He went to see Richard Nixon at the White House. He, he took a couple of six guns out in the White House and handed it to Nixon as a gift. That was quite funny because you, you couldn't do that today.
0: Right? And he said to,
1: he said to Nixon... I would like to be your ambassador to the young people of America to get you votes. And he said, and this is where the Beatles were upset, he said, those Beatles, he said, they earn and take all the money from America. They go back to England with the money they earned in America and they badmouth America. Well, that wasn't true. And I want to tell you that the Beatles, I know this personally, were so upset with that statement, uh, that Elvis was bad-mouthing them, that, uh, you know, they, they never met again after that one occasion. So Elvis was jealous, of course, he had reason to be jealous, and the Beatles were turned off of him, and they never, after that one meeting in August of 1955, they never met again.
0: Once again we're talking with Ivor Davis tonight. We're talking about his book The Beatles and Me on Tour. By the way, you can go to his website and get more information about all of his work. It's ivordavisbooks.com. Brian Epstein, Ivor. He is credited to have created what we know as the Beatles. He saw them uh, as you said they were a bit of uh, kind of ruffians at the time. Leather jackets, you know, smoking and greased back hair and the, the whole thing. Um was he a genius? What uh, how did he how did he capture this lightning in a bottle?
1: Well, I, 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 in a way, he was a genius because what he did was he took a, a, a sort of greasy rock and roll group, as you pointed out, with a leather jacket. I mean, they would they would perform on stage. They would smoke. They would swear. Um, and they would do other things that were not really professional. And he cleaned up the act. And he turned them. He put them into these very tight suits with no pockets. And he made sure that they had the same haircuts. And if you remember, and those of us who've seen the footage, and uh, I saw it there, and, I, I, and we've seen the footage, at the end of each uh, concert they would bow kind of elegantly, instead of wander off stage. So he really, he really polished the act, and he was a taskmaster because if any of them did things wrong during a concert, Brian read them the right act backstage. Believe me. I mean, even when, a press conferences, if, if John had his hands in his pockets when he was talking to somebody, Brian would tell him off. So Brian was very, very good in turning them into a a saleable commodity. I mean, I always loved the story when I asked somebody on the tour, well, you know, um, what's the big deal between the Beatles and the Rolling Stones who, who are still going strong? And they said, well, the Beatles image is one that's that kids would take home to meet their parents with great joy because they were clean-cut guys. But if you took the Rolling Stones home, they would burn the house down. So, you know, that was the image difference. Um, and and Brian was terrific on that. He was a taskmaster. He read them the riot act. But strangely enough, where he fell down was that he didn't have a clue about Merchandising. He gave away the Beaker's merchandising because he thought it was it was nothing, and neither did the Beaker think merchandising was worth pursuing. I remember buying a Beaker wig for about a dollar fifty, showing it to John. He was so upset at the at the trash that he went to the window of the hotel and he threw it away, threw it out the window. So that was the way merchandising in those days was viewed as a kind of a, a rather rough, not very classy way to make money. But look at look at the money they made. Look at, look at it today. I mean, it's it's a, a, a well of money, isn't it? It's a fountain of fortune.
0: I'm trying to imagine Brian Epstein, um, talking to John Lennon and convincing John Lennon that he had to do things a certain way? Because from what I know, and you probably know way better than I, Ivor, John Lennon was a bit of a free spirit. How did he get him to comply?
1: Well, you're absolutely right. I think, I mean, John always resented the fact that a lot of his um, freedom uh, is avant-garde, if you like, of, of, of doing your own thing was constricted by Brian's way of saying, this is the way you should do it, boys. This is the way you behave in public. You know, you don't fart and you don't smoke and you don't swear. Um, You have to, you know, you have to be, clean it up because these are young people that are coming to see you, young people. uh, And, uh, you know, destroy the image of of these sort of hard rock and rollers, the ones that... uh, I forget what the the, the the thing is where they shoot to smash guitars and, and you know that sort of stuff. I mean, the Beatles you do not do this. You behave like gentlemen when you're on stage, and this is the way you've got to be. And John, who was the rebel of the group, just resented it like crazy, and would would have big rows with Brian. Uh, he and Brian had a kind of uh, a hot cold relationship. Uh, of the lot, I would say, uh, because John would challenge his leadership, uh, excuse me, publicly and and and, and privately. And uh, Brian and he um, often went at it, uh, not not publicly, but I know privately they had big, big arguments.
0: Now, Brian, um, for those of you who are not that familiar with the Beatles story, died of a, it was a drug overdose, wasn't it, Ivor? And it was yes, only a I few mean, years was, later. Yeah,
1: it was, it was a drug overdose. I mean, Brian was into drugs. Brian um, Brian would, 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 would um, disappear. Uh, he often took drugs. He, he drank, which is not a very good combination, as anybody knows today. Um, and Brian would go into uh, rehab. Uh, and treat his rehab like a hotel, because after three days he said, well, I've had enough of this, I'm leaving. So he checked out. So Brian was a, 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 I mean, first of all, Brian, you've got to understand, was gay at the time in England when if you were gay, you could get arrested for being gay. So that was that was his big secret. I mean, we all knew it on, on the trip. We knew Brian was homosexual. But 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 Brian was a sort of troubled soul because of that. I mean, he was from a sort of an upper class Jewish home in Liverpool, different class to the Beatles. And um, Brian and, and Brian kept the secret of his of his homosexuality um, from everyone, or tried to. And so you've got to realise that Brian was a a sort of torn asunder, troubled man in his own personal life, and yet. Uh, you've got to give
0: him credit for turning the Beatles into the Beatles that we all now allow. The first film the Beatles made, A Hard Day's Night, critically acclaimed, a terrific movie. It's a real classic, not just of filmmaking, but of uh, of a snapshot of pop culture. It's amazing. And it also offers, in what seems to be a rather realistic fashion, a glimpse into the day of the life of being a Beatle. How accurate was that representation?
1: Well, I can tell you that it, w- it was absolutely spot on. There wasn't much exaggeration. And the amazing thing, JP, is that if you and I can sit down and watch A Hard Day's Night today, and we can still enjoy it. It That's was right. their first movie. It was, it was beautifully shot. And it was really typical of the way things were. Screaming fans, chasing them through the streets, um, invading their privacy and all that sort of stuff. But done with a kind of uh, jocular amusement by by, um, by the director, um, and and that was a film that was a huge hit. Um, and then they and then I you know, they did a, a second movie called Help, which is which is a bit more manufactured, a little less enjoyable. But you know what, the Beatles did not like making movies, so when they they had a, a three picture deal. With Hollywood United Artists to make three movies, and they and and those of you that remember Yellow Submarine can remember that the Beatles were not in the film. Right, uh, they, it was animated Beatles. And the funny thing was, the Beatles had a contract to make three movies. Yellow Submarine was their third movie, but but they had to show up, and they show up. For 30 seconds at the end of the film, and they say, "We have fulfilled our obligations to the film studio. We're, we're out of here." And that was a funny thing. So next time you see Yellow Submarine, which is a wonderful animated
0: film, look for the Beatles for 30 seconds at the end. Yeah, and that, that film won some uh, some awards, uh, if I remember correctly as well, didn't it? Did it even win, it did. Did, did it win an academy Award for something? I don't remember.
1: I don't think it won an Academy Award. It might have been nominated, but okay. it was, again, you know, the amazing thing is, JP, that you can, you can watch Hell, you can watch A Hard Day's Night, and you can watch Yellow Submarine, as I have in the last three or four years, and you can enjoy it. It still holds up. Many old films, 50 years or whatever, um, kind of lose their um, appeal, but, but the Beatles movies, um, are still fun. I, I, I mean, I can tell you that for certainty because I very often go to screenings and talk after the film, and I enjoy the movie more when I see it later than I did when I first saw it.
0: Just like their music, it just holds up. It's a, oh. it's an amazing testament. Um, how many people were part of the entourage when you were traveling with the Beatles? How many people did it take? to do what they were doing in, in, uh, on tour in the, in America back in those days?
1: Well, here's, here's what happened. I mean, this is hard to believe. First of all, the recording, uh, the, the microphones, the sound systems were terrible. And yet they had Mal Evans and Neil Aspinall, two, two road managers only for this. Now, I must tell you the story because I knew Neil and I knew Mal, and they were nice guys. And they started out with the Beatles in the early days. And the Beatles were—they were very loyal to the Beatles, and vice versa. So they had two people running their road show. Uh, Amazing. Um, When I spoke to Paul McCartney six months ago at San Diego at Petco Stadium, where he was doing a concert in front of fifty-five thousand people, and he performed non-stop for three hours and ten minutes. Before uh, before the show, I went back to see him and chat to him. And I said to him, I asked him the question that you just asked. Uh, I said, you know, you had Neil and you had Mal for those first tours. I said, now, when you go on the road, Paul, with your group now today, how many people do you have in the staff to make sure it goes by clockwork? And he said, take a, take a guess, JB.
0: I'm going to guess that, that it's more than two. I'm going to guess that it's more than <laughs> two. Yes,
1: you're right. How about 92? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, 92 people working full-time to make sure uh, the, the trains run on time. You know what I mean? I mean, not the trains run on time. Sure. But well, make sure that it goes smoothly. And, of course, you know, when they traveled in America, they had a small uh, chartered jet. When they traveled in England, they had a beaten-up old car with no backseat. And um, when they go around the world, on, when Paul goes around the world, he travels with uh, a jumbo jet and sometimes two jumbo jets to take the equipment. So times, they are changing.
0: It's amazing. We're, we have to go to break here in just a minute, and we'll continue the conversation on the other side of the break. But one more question before we head into this break. Did those uh, days of traveling with the Beatles change your life, Ivor or Ivor?
1: Well, you know, you know, strangely enough, um, I, I'd like to say they did, but they didn't. And I'll tell you why. Um, I was a, a, a journalist working for a big London newspaper. And as soon as I got back to L.A., where I was headquartered, where my bureau was, um, the next day was the Warren Commission report. So uh, it was yesterday Was the Beatles goodbye in New York. The next day I was thrown straight into the Warren Commission report. Oh, wow. And and you know, you just go on. When you work for a daily newspaper, you don't you don't get a chance to smell the roses because there's always a big story coming up next. So I regret that and that's why it took me forty eight years or so to write a bloody book about my travels. <laughs> um and there it is. <laughs>
0: We're talking with Ivor Davis tonight. His book is called The Beatles and Me on Tour. He's got other books also to his credit. You can get more information about all of that at his website, which is ivordavisbooks.com. Ivor, you were with them, and they were prisoners throughout that part of 1964 as they were traveling around the United States. That song was recorded, I think, in June of sixty five. You must have had an opportunity to overhear maybe John, maybe all of them, but John and Paul particularly, uh, writing some music, because they probably didn't have much else they could do because they couldn't leave their rooms. Did you have that opportunity to hear them writing anything?
1: Well, uh, first of all, let me just say, I, 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 I enjoy talking to you, JB, because you are obviously a Beatle aficionado, an expert, because you know so much about them, and 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 before I answer the question, I want to ask you a question. Do you mind if I ask you a question?
0: Sure, go ahead. That's did
1: you a... did you ever get a chance to see Paul or Ringo lately? I mean, you're obviously too young to remember them, uh, you know, back in 64. Um, did you ever see any of the Beatles live? I know you said you've watched documentaries about them.
0: I saw Paul McCartney in Philadelphia, and I don't remember exactly what year it was, but it was sometime... <laughs> In the early 90s, maybe 94. Uh, I'm not sure when he was on tour. I actually was going through some boxes the other day, moving things around in my studio, and I came across the program from that tour. Um, but that was the only time I've had an opportunity. I, w- I almost went and saw Ringo Starr and his all-star band. They played rather close to me because I'm in upstate New York. Um, but yeah. I, had a, I had a conflict on the date, so I couldn't, I couldn't catch that show. But yeah, just the one Paul McCartney show.
1: Yeah, I mean, was it? Were you impressed with Paul? And did he do? Did he do his, you uh, know, uh, two hour, two three hour
0: show? Yes, he absolutely did, and I was very, very impressed by Paul. And in fact, the funny thing about it is, I remember at that time thinking, "Wow, Paul is what was the age? Maybe, maybe close to sixty. I'm not exactly sure what it was." Um, yeah, and he's performing like he's a 24 year old Beetle again. Um, he right. sounded great, looked great, performed forever, uh, you know, never left the stage. And to think that he's still doing that is just almost imp- it's almost uh, impossible to believe
1: well that is that is amazing. and i I, I tell you this. Um, Ringo does a terrific job, but Ringo, of course, has support. So Ringo is not on stage with his all- stars all the time. He sings the ones that you want to hear him sing. Uh, and a yellow submarine and stuff like that, uh, but then then he steps off the stage and lets other younger talent do uh, do their thing, and then he comes back on. So Ringo, the Ringo's longevity is quite clever, and uh, unlike Paul, Ringo does leave the stage. Paul is there from start to finish. So I'm sorry to, to, to deviate you from your your questions, but can can you tell me that question again? I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, um, I, 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 could you repeat
0: that? sure. I just I had just noticed that the bumper song I had played, which is help, uh, was written or was recorded in June of 1965. And it made me think that on that tour, when you were traveling with the Beatles in 1964, because they were prisoners, they had to find things to do in their hotel room. And I imagine songwriting was one of those things. Um, it's very possible that the Beatles could have started working on help. Or other, you know, songs that we all know during that time. Did you get an opportunity to overhear any of that?
1: Well, you're absolutely right, because as I said, and as you know, um, they couldn't leave their hotel rooms. But the other little piece of the jigsaw was that I knew that this was don't forget uh, August, September, and for, for, for early uh, early December, the Beatles were contracted to do a new album for Christmas um, and so on the road there were very often I would wander, wander into into their suite uh, because we uh, my room was next to their room and you, could, you know it was sort of open open doors um, and there was John and there was Paul sitting on the carpet with yellow legal pads composing songs for their next album so at least uh, the prisoner thing worked out quite well for them because if they had free access, free access to the country, they could have been out to nightclubs and what have you uh but the, but it didn't happen, so they were was it was like I mean, a bit sort of slave laborish, but they knew they had to come up with about fifteen new songs between the time they left the tour. To November, because then they had to go into the studio Abbey Road record the December album, and they knew they were under the gun. So I saw them composing. As soon as I saw them together on the floor with 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 yellow legal pads, I just wave and leave. So yes, they they worked very hard.
0: Did you ever have an opportunity um, after a song had been released? and you heard it on the radio say that you could say, wow, I remember when they were sitting in the, on the floor with the legal pads working on that song. Did it, did you ever Were you ever able to, make, able to make that connection with any of the music?
1: Well, unfortunately, I never heard them singing the song, so I, 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 I'm not going to claim that I did, but I know that, that, that every time a new album came out, that they, I mean, they, I mean, Brian Epstein cracked the whip. So not only did he have them on stage doing their concerts, I mean think of it. And then he said, "You need we need we need fifteen new songs for the next album." So they were under the gun. And although I never saw them or heard them humming or or, or that any of that stuff, I knew that it, it, there was a deadline. And the Beatles kind of well, the Beatles I would say it was just Paul and John, of course, who were the main songwriters because they used to toss. A, 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 a crumb uh, to George and, and, and a smaller crumb to Ringo uh, in those days to sing. And in those days that Paul and John wrote the songs, um, Ringo and George never kind of got a look in. And when they did, it was it was a seldom rare one or two songs. So they were the, they were the monopolies of their songwriting. And of course, as we know, when we listen to the songs, some of the greatest stuff was written by John and Paul, although in later years, after the Beatles broke up, George Harrison blossomed into a terrific songwriter doing his own stuff. And it took the Beatles, to, for George, to uh, bloom into a great songwriter and a great entertainer. But sadly, because of cancer, he died um, much too young. And uh, Ringo is still si- sitting performing and, and creating new music. And, of course, Paul has written everything from the rock and roll favorites that we love to, to um, masses and, uh, and, uh, and, and and symphonic work. So pretty talented guys.
0: Yeah, it's, it's also um, incredible to think about John Lennon and Paul McCartney and how, what an instant hit machine, uh, hit writing machine the two of them were. They could almost do it on command.
1: It was amazing. You're right. I, I, it, 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 it's it's quite magical, really. But but even when they broke up, uh, both Paul and John wrote some great stuff right. that they didn't write together. So I mean, the talent was there. The uh, the musical magic, or whatever you want to call it, uh, along along the lines of some of the Lerner and lows, the Broadway people, of the great. Somebody said, you know, they're the sort of rock and roll Beethoven. And uh, and then I was uh, at a Beethoven concert last week, and I thought, you know, I wonder if i what I would have said if I'd known Beethoven and had rum and Coca Cola with Beethoven. <laughs> but but it, 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 it's the same sort of thing in a way. I had rum and coke with with Lennon and McCartney. So uh, come back and talk to me in a hundred years, and maybe <laughs> we'll talk about
0: it. So you've got to share uh, your your experience of hanging out, whether it's in a hotel room or wherever it happens to be, and having drinks with the Beatles. Did the, how, how were they as drinking partners?
1: Well, I mean, they loved to drink. I mean, they, they, drank, they drank rum and Coca-Cola, which, to be honest with you, is not my choice of drink. Um, you know, the, the, it, it, it was kind of sweet, and they liked it. And, you know, they would sometimes have a beer. They'd like, they'd ordered, uh, they'd try and order English food at the hotel, and usually it came back pretty awful. Um, but, you know, believe it or not, they were not great connoisseurs of wine, and they were not into into, into fine dining. I mean, right now, Paul, I'm sure, is, 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 is a health food fanatic. But then you've got to realize, these kids, these are sort of semi-working class kids who were not uh, uh, gourmand. If you like, they weren't, uh, they didn't say, let's go to um, the, the, the top restaurant in town. No, they would have fish and chips and they'd have the basic food. Um, you know, it, it because they grew up with basic food, this is what they liked. And of course, today, as you mature, as all of us mature, I mean, I grew up like the Beatles, same kind of working class background, and my food. Food desires back then was very basic. Now I like better
0: food, and so do the Beatles. Um, do you have a, a, a fact or a, a short story that you can share with us so that maybe no one has ever heard? Uh, something that you had a uh, personal experience with that you can share with us that might be new to us. Well, um, th-
1: there are there are a couple of a couple of stories. I mean, one of them was the night. That we, he, he, I, I should preface this story with a with a bit of background. Everybody in Hollywood wanted to meet the Beatles, Liberace, Dylan, uh, Joan uh, Joan Baez, uh, Jane Mansfield. Now Jane Mansfield in those days was one of these the sex symbols of Hollywood. So she managed to connive a meeting with the Beatles, and John took a fancy to her. So she said, "Come with us to uh, you know my friend Johnny Rivers." is performing at a restaurant, uh, a nightclub on Sunset Boulevard called the Whiskey and Go-Go. You know, you'll love him. He's great. Paul went off with a girlfriend. John and George and Ringo and I and a couple of other colleagues on the media went along to the Whiskey and Go-Go. Well, with Jane Mansfield. Now, Jane Mansfield was a... Um, uh, not only did she expose a lot of flesh, she exposed a lot of publicity. And she knew the Beatles were uh, a, a way to get some publicity. So we show up at the Whiskey Go-Go. The place is packed. The beacons get trapped into a banquet, uh, a, a, a big table for Johnny Rivers' performance. And they are very upset because the paparazzi has come in there. They're taking their pictures. They're sticking the cameras up their noses. And they're getting more and more angry. And George is having too much to drink. And finally, before the big show starts, a photographer is asked by George uh, in no mean words. I mean, George was quite, uh, I, I don't want to be too foul-mouthed, but George could be foul-mouthed when he wanted to. He told the photographer, uh, would you please leave? He actually used stronger language than that. The photographer then stuck the camera under, under George's nose, flashed it. Because in those days, they used to have big flashes. George was so upset and had a few to drink, he picked up his drink and he threw it at the photographer, but it missed the photographer and it hit another actress who happened to be there. Everybody started screaming. Bedlam broke loose. We watched this charade unfold, and within seconds, Jane Mansfield, John Lennon, uh, Ringo, uh, they were gone. They were out the door, embarrassed and awful. Then the next day as we left Los Angeles, Somebody gave George a picture of him throwing a drink at the <laughs> photographer. And, and did, did, did Brian Epstein read George the riot act? I mean, this is not the way you behave with the media. So that was an embarrassing story that not too many people know about. But I was there watching this whole uh, charade uh, unfold. And there was Jane Mansfield loving every minute of it.
0: Did... Uh you ever witness any of these girls primarily uh, making extraordinary efforts to try to get into the Beatles' hotel rooms?
1: Yes. Oh, oh, yes. I mean, it happened all the time. Um, I mean, what would happen was, for example, because I had an English accent and I I didn't look like a Beatle, mothers would approach me with all sorts of wonderful offers um, with with a little conditional reminder saying, well, um, I could do something for you if you could do something for me. Like uh, my daughter, her life's ambition is to meet the Beatles. Well, after the first thing that happened, I, I, I knew I, it, I, it was a no-win situation. And so I would turn them over to the road managers. But the girls did want to get in to see the Beatles. And whatever happened, then things did happen. I mean, there's, there's no doubt. Um, but... Um, They they sort of kept it under wraps. Now, in today's world of Internet and Instagram and all the rest of it, and, of course, in those days we didn't have our iPhone cameras, um, we knew that if we uh, reported on uh, Miss, I don't know, Miss Winnipeg um, getting into hot water with one of the Beatles, that Brian Epstein would then say, Uh, Mr. Davis, thank you for joining us. There's no room on our plane. So we were very protective of the boys, I must say, because we liked them and they became members of the family. So some of that stuff went on. Quite a bit of that stuff went on. But um, we did make a big deal about it. I mean, this is why they called them groupies, isn't it?
0: Exactly. Ivor, when did you write The Beatles and Me on Tour before we uh, before we continue with the conversation here? When was it written and when did you, re- when did you release it?
1: Um, I, 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 I wrote it 50 years after I was on tour with The Beatles, and it was in 1964 I was on tour. So it was a, about five years ago I wrote uh, The Beatles and Me on Tour. Uh, but um, uh, a few months ago I wrote The book you just mentioned, which is Madness Exposed, the reporter's 50-year journey into madness and murder. And as you pointed out, and as you played Helter Skelter, it was, it, I was stunned because the Beatles were prominent in this awful murder case. Uh, one of the most sensational murder cases involved the Beatles. And, and if there's time, I'd like to tell you how it happened and what my reaction was when I realized that Charles Manson, uh, who was convicted of the murder, the murders uh, 50 years ago last summer, used the Beaker music and their songs to brainwash his uh, band of killers, um, claiming that the Beakers were sending him messages. I mean, it, 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 it beggars belief. It's unbelievable. And yet I was in court and I covered the murder trial, and I covered the Manson case, uh, and and when I heard this, I just thought the world has gone mad.
0: It's uh, it's it's hard to imagine your your decade, the nineteen sixties. You traveled with the Beatles. You covered the Warren Report. You were on site when Robert F. Kennedy was assassinated. And then you covered the Manson trial. I mean, those years, um, there's so much history packed in to just a a few short years there. And you were there for all of it.
1: Well, yes, I was. Um, And and you asked me a little earlier whether I realized that the Beatles were going to be as great that they turned out to be? And the answer is no, because I think all of us, and I, I throw you in, I suggest you might uh, agree with me, JB. All of us, when when something historic happens, we think it's historic, but then we move on with our lives. Yeah. We don't dwell on it. Um, we, we think this is, this is history, but uh, tomorrow comes tomorrow. So um, all those things happen to me, and I covered them, and as I said, and as you noted, I went on to another story. But but when I, when the Manson case came up, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because I got very involved in the Manson murders from day one, from the first day of the murders, I was there at the at the murder house, and then I did my own investigation. I went down to the place called the Spahn Ranch where Manson lived with his his devotees, which is an old Decrepit movie ranch, and if anybody's seen the movie, once upon a time in Hollywood, uh, Quentin Tarantino shows the ranch the way it is, which is a a real, not hellhole, but a, 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 a beaten up old place. So there I was in this beaten up old place, talking to Manson family members who were not involved in the murders, and then they tell me this story about, would you believe... The Beatles were sending secret messages to Charles Manson through the lyrics of the White Album and songs that you played, like "Helter Skelter," "Revolution," Piggies, and and made them believe that the Beatles were in on this and were, were coaching them about an upcoming race war in America, which would wipe out everybody. And and it was it was when I heard that I thought. Everybody's lost their mind. I know the beat of music. I know the Helter Skelter lyrics. You played the Helter Skelter lyrics. Coming down fast uh, is about a a, a fairground ride. How can these people believe what Manson was feeding them? And yet the punchline was Vincent Bugliosi, the district attorney who convicted Manson, used that exact motive and he got the jury to convict Manson. And Manson was guilty, and so were his, his followers. So uh, I, I listened to that unfold before my very eyes and thought, as I said, the world has gone mad, something is wrong. Am I crazy?
0: Well, you certainly wouldn't expect... Uh, these, let's call them subliminal messages to drive someone to commit such a heinous act. But you even said in the beginning of our conversation that the girls, the teenage girls that went to see the Beatles in the early days uh, said that the Beatles were they were waving at them or making a personal connection. Other people along the way said they heard secret messages throughout the Beatles' music. When you played it backwards, there was a special message. Yes. You know, all these things permeated and surrounded the Beatles. They couldn't escape it, and they would deny most most of it. Um, they would deny almost all of it, yet those things persisted throughout their career. Um, I don't know if there's if there's any explanation for that or was it just that their well, personalities were so huge that people could read any, into it any way they wanted?
1: Well, you know, I think it's interesting you brought up the subject and you thrown this back at me and, and when I said to you earlier in our conversation that every girl in the audience believed believed within their heart that each of the Beatles was in love with them, or one of the Beatles was in love with them. They believed it. I mean right. so so you've got to realise that let's fast forward to nineteen sixty nine and Manson was feeding these young people L S D and all sorts of wild mesquite drugs and what have you. And in their in their rather tortured drug Riddled minds. Maybe, maybe the Beatles' lyrics were incitement to, to whatever. I mean, there was a song in the Beatles' White Album of 1968 called "Sexy Sadie." Sure, yeah. and there was a member of the Manson family who was one of the killers, Sadie uh, uh, Susan Atkins, who was known as Sexy Sadie. So Manson said, "You see, the Beatles are sending us messages." And 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 and. You know, when you reflect upon that, you can see sometimes how a depraved mind could believe the most ridiculous thing you can ever think of. Because, because all our minds are malleable or, or manipulated in, in, in many ways. So, as we have this discussion, um, maybe, uh, you know, you're, you're talking some sense uh, about what, you know, Why did the girls think it it, it meant a race war? I don't know. I mean, when I heard it, um, maybe my common sense kicked in and I said, oh, this has got to be rubbish. This is absolute balderdash. Doesn't make sense to me. I know the beat I know they wouldn't tell people to go out and kill, but People believed it. You know, mansion family members did.
0: I'm scanning my brain, trying to come up with uh, a single Beatles song that says anything negative, let alone you know gives people guidance to go commit murder. Um, You know, the Beatles. If if they were known for one thing, you know, all you need is love is kind of the I think the anthem. Uh, for what the Beatles stood for in the late '60s, and uh, you know, so it is a real perversion of what they were doing because I can't think of a single Beatles lyric that is in any way um, anything other than inspiring.
1: Well, yes, I mean, well, look at look at it from that from that point of view, and some of the if you look at the songs and listen to the lyrics, um, and and I've listened to Helter Skelter many times and, and say, well, is there a gem? of what, of, 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 of suggested murder. But, uh, as I say, when you have a, a, a mind which is bent uh, by a, a huge amount of drugs, you're going to believe anything. I mean, LSD was handed out by Manson to the girls at the spa and movie ranch every day with all these other drugs. Um, I've never taken the heavy drugs myself, but I think I'm told that by people who have that you know, they're in a different orbit. So, it, I mean, as ridiculous as it may sound, um, and I write about it in my Manson Exposed book, and the Beatles made me do it. Of course they didn't. Come on. And, 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 and those who love the Beatles don't want to hear me say that. Don't want to even hear that, but it's part of the awful criminal history that you and I are currently talking about.
0: I'm trying to remember uh, any any interviews or discussions with any of the Beatles. Did they ever acknowledge or respond to those um, assertions well, they, from Manson? Well, they
1: did. Um, uh, here's, I mean, I was able to speak to, personally, to John Lennon about it. In, in 1972, when John was uh, on his lost weekend, which lasted 18 months, <laughs> and he'd left Yoko in New York, and he'd come to the West Coast, with um, May Pang, who was a young lady who uh, was, set, was set up by, by Yoko. And I went to see John, and I asked John, uh, he was living in a, a house in Bel Air, a rented house, uh, belonging to uh, Lou Adler, who was a, a famous uh, record producer. And I said to John, um, I covered the trial, John, and I, I can't believe um, all this ridiculousness about the White Album. Well, first of all, John didn't want to go there. But when I told him I knew all about it, I covered the trial. He said, I mean, he, he just, he said the problem, in a way, with Beatle lyrics is, um, look, at, look at some of the songs. Some people think they know what our songs are about. And they read into our songs, like, I mean, even Bob Dylan said, um, uh, I think I get high with a little help from my friends. And, and the lyrics are not exactly that. There's something else. So everybody, even Dylan, thought they were talking about drugs in that song. And and there were so many stories. I mean, the one you mentioned a moment ago, Paul is dead, uh, and we know he's dead because if you play this record back to front or right. whatever, you will you will get the message. So all these myths and uh, misnomers and whatever you want to call them happened. I'm sure. With many, many lyrics, and and in, in the Beatles' case, many of their lyrics were misinterpreted, and um, uh, and that's why Manson got away with it. I mean, he would he would play the White Album like twenty times a day while his followers uh, were on drugs, and they they began to believe. I mean, look at. Remember Jim Jones in...
0: Of course, yeah. Diana's yeah, yeah Jonestown.
1: Sure. Mm-hmm. Jonestown, right? Yep. And here was a guy who told 900 people to swallow Kool-Aid that just happened to be poison. So they they did it. He mesmerized them. So, you know, when you see those kind of things happening, and I suppose you could say Adolf Hitler in World War Two brainwashed his you know, Nazi party. I don't know. I mean, you know, yeah. we can open it out. I'm sure
0: you could come up with a few other examples of insanity. The um, we, We're going to run out of time here, so I, I'm going to ask one more question about this drug reference in the Beatles because I just want your opinion, and I know there's no real answer to this question, but Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds, what's your opinion? <laughs>
1: um, I don't think... Um, you know, I think there's a bit of both there. I mean, LSD, yeah. Um, John denies it. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, it, it, it could be an LSD reference, a very clever reference. John said it wasn't. Um, but don't forget, the Beatles were also into drugs. And um, uh, I, I would sort of be on the fence with that one. Um, Lucy in uh, the Sky with Diamonds, could be LSD. Could
0: not. Um, what do you think? I I, I I lean toward thinking it probably was a clever way of John Lennon um, incorporating it into a song. But I can also understand why he deny it. And I will also say yeah. that the first song I played for bumper music for our conversation tonight was the song Doctor Robert, who who was what was that was written. Um, after the, uh, the, I think it was a dentist who supplied the Beatles, uh, unknowingly yes. to them, with their first hit of LSD.
1: Yes, he did. He did. I mean, they went to a dinner party, as you know, I'm sure. And and at dessert, the, the dentist, I think it was George's dentist, um, impregnated their coffee or their after-dinner drink with LSD. And they, they kind of went a bit crazy. And then, of course, as you know, Paul makes no big secret of the fact that he imbibed LSD. So, I mean, the Beatles were into into drugs. I mean, John was very much into drugs. Um, so, who knows? Uh, maybe uh, some of their songs were inspired by drugs. Um, uh, but but I know m- very often. Um, hey Jude. Um, I remember a, 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 a music writer on the newspaper I worked for said. Hey, her name was Julia. She said Paul has written this song about me. The last I did an interview with him three months ago, and he's come and written "Hey Jude" about me. Well, it wasn't. It was about um, it was about um, Julian Lennon, uh, about uh, uh, John's son. But so everybody sees a lyric and says, "Hey, Jv, this is my song. It, he's writing about me. He's writing about Ivor. Probably not."
0: And I think, I think the difference here when it comes to the Beatles is you have to care enough about the music to see those references, even if they're a bit misguided, to think they're writing about you or to think it's something about you. If you don't care about the music, you're not going to even look for those things. And that's really the difference.
1: You've hit the nail on the head perfectly, J.V., and that's exactly it. If you want to adopt it as your theme song, you can do it and you can find justification.
0: One more question about uh, the Manson uh, story. Uh, Bugliosi obviously wrote the book Helter Skelter. It was also turned into a movie, and it was his account of of the crime plus the trial. Uh, It's come under fire a little bit recently. Are you involved or uh, aware of the controversy, and what are your thoughts on it, if you are?
1: Well, here's the situation. I knew Vincent Bugliosi very well indeed because I covered the trial for a year, and I knew him, and I knew him after he wrote the book. The problem with Vince was, number one, he did a fantastic job. He lived the he lived the Manson murder case twenty-four hours a day for nearly a year. At the same time, Vincent was not a um, how shall I say, a modest man. Vincent, in his mind, sold the murder. And when I spoke to all the cops that worked hundreds of hours, they said, Well, not really. We were there doing a lot of work. So Vince was a dedicated, eager, ego driven um, prosecutor, but maybe you needed it. He hated, he hated Manson. They were, you know, you could see the sparks fly, but maybe to get somebody convicted, you need to have hostility and hate and all that kind of stuff. So Vincent did an incredible job in getting the conviction, in getting the jury to believe the thesis that the White Album was behind the murders. I mean, come on, that's a pretty large swallow, isn't it, yeah. JV.
0: Yeah, it really is. Before I let you go, you also wrote a book uh, for children, didn't you,
1: Ivor? Or yes, I, I did. I, I wrote a book, I mean, as it, it, a slight change of pace, um, I wrote a book called um, Ladies and Gentlemen the Pain, and it was based on the fact when I was cruising and doing lectures, I went to Argentina, I went to the Falkland Islands, there were a lot of penguins and they all quacked with an English accent because it's an English <laughs> island and I thought, Wow, what would happen if the penguins the penguins decided to become rock stars and they did become rock stars and, and, and I got a great illustrator and you know they did they you know that they it was kind of a spoof on the because their first big hit was I wanna hold your flipper and they all <laughs> appeared they all went to New York at the Penguins and they appeared on that terrific variety show in New York called the Ed Pelican Show. So, you know, I had a bit of fun with that and I'm, I'm having I'm still having a lot of a lot of fun with that. And can I just throw in, because I know we're running out of time, but my, I'm delighted that my Manson Exposed book is coming out on audio the next week on February the 18th and I haven't heard it yet, but I don't read it, but apparently it's not a bad read. I wrote it, but I didn't, I uh, haven't heard it. So it's been, uh, it's been a terrific time talking to you, JV, and I must say I've enjoyed it.
0: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. Just let people know where they can find all of your work. I mentioned the website a couple of times, but where can they find that? Where can they find the audio book when it comes out?
1: The audio book which comes out on February the 18th. I mean, there are so many outlets: Amazon and uh, and and iTunes and UTunes and MeTunes. I mean, <laughs> wherever audio books are available, my Manson Exposed is available. But if you have any problem and you don't know, you miss that, then then go to my iverdavisbooks.com, dot com, and there'll be a lot of stuff about the audio book. So I hope they listen to the book or even read the book, which is fun. And um, as I say, what a what a pleasure to be with you for this time
0: jv well i appreciate it and hopefully we'll be get a chance to get you back i would like to talk more about the manson project as well because there's a whole show just in that but this has been a fabulous treat for me and ivor thanks so much and i look forward to talking to you again thanks for
1: having me